I think my favorite television show of all time has to be the Andy Griffith Show. Not long ago, I saw one of my favorite episodes. You might be familiar with it. Barney is out in the squad car and he comes up on two big farmers who are selling their produce illegally. One of them bears a striking resemblance to Sam the Butcher on Brady Bunch. Barney tells them to move along, but instead of being swayed by the badge, they intimidate him and they run him off. And that kind of ruins his day. And Andy happens to be by the same place and encounters the same men. And they try the same tactic on him, but he won't be intimidated. And he tells them to move along. Grudgingly, they begin to put their crates of vegetables and fruits up onto the truck bed. And as they do, still perhaps begrudging a little bit, Andy concocts a story about Barney being a fierce lawman. Called him Barney the Beast and Crazy Gun Fife. And along comes Barney. And they get in a big hurry because they're afraid of what he might do as he tugs at his tie and he hits his gun, which they think are signs he's about to kill them. And they run away and, and they wind up at Wally's filling station and there's Wally and Floyd joking about Barney. And they find out they've been had. And so they get a message to Barney saying, We're back in business. We want Barney as a customer. As you might imagine, Barney's scared to death. But he goes up to both of those guys and he looks them in the face. And he says, both of you are a lot bigger than I am. He says, but this badge represents a lot of people. And they're a lot bigger than either of you. Now, are you going to get moving? It's one of Barney's finest moments. And really, it's an inspiring moment moment. Because all of us have found ourselves in situations where we were faced with doing something that intimidated us, that had us scared, but we knew it was the right thing to do, and so we had to do it. I suggest to you that preaching has an intimidating dimension to it, because the preacher wants to be liked and loved and appreciated and accepted like anyone else. But the difficulty comes when he has to preach something that God's word has to say that's not going to be very popular with the people to whom he preaches, but he knows he has to do that anyway. The Apostle Paul understood this full well, all that he sacrificed for the cause of Christ. And he was mentoring a young man by the name of Timothy who was preaching at Ephesus. And he encourages him to be balanced, but to be faithful in his message. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read beginning at verse 1, I charge you, therefore, in the sight of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his coming and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, and exhort with all great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their lust, they will accumulate to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will be turned unto fables. That's reading down through verse 4. In the narrative of Numbers, we come to appreciate the great task that's faced by Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. They are trying to convince the people to do something. To keep themselves from harm. 
To not do something that would hold them back. Whether it was going back into Egypt or whether it was going into Canaan. But the people didn't want to hear it. And they made their reaction known loud and clear. They murmured and they even uh, threatened murder for the speakers. You know, Moses sums up his experience with the people in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. As he says, Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given unto you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you would not listen to his hymn nor obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. You know, the task of these leaders was to speak the right word in the right way at the right time. And as you read the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you see what a great challenge this was at time. I think it might be a fair thing to say that people have developed ear trouble in the last several years. And I'm not saying that there's been changes in their ears. And when I say that, I don't mean change in the shape or the size or even in the physical ability to hear. But the kind of ear changes and troubles that the Apostle Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Ears that itch to hear what they want to hear. And ears that are turned away from the truth and that are turned toward fables. And because I don't know many men who preach who who care about the people to whom they preach, they don't want to say those things that are going to hurt the people that listen to them. And yet if one is going to faithfully declare the whole counsel of God, they must say the difficult. Otherwise, they're going to be part of why God's people wind up in that proverbial wilderness. As we look at those men who were charged with speaking the word, I think what we find is their clear voices... And we learn from that what clear preaching is. And we want clear preaching. Because that's what God calls for. Not only in 2 Timothy chapter 4, but in other passages. And as we see these men who stand out for us in this wilderness scene, we see what kind of preaching is necessary to keep us from going into that proverbial wilderness. What makes for clear preaching? I want us to notice from the narrative here in the book of Numbers and elsewhere as we look at these men what it is. The first thing we notice is that clear preaching is that which calls for commitment. And as we consider this, we think about the words of Caleb that we've already visited so many times before when he stands and he quiets the people before Moses and he says, let us go up at once and take possession Caleb understands that he is asking these people to do something perhaps scarier and more intimidating than anything that they had done heretofore. Apparently it was because whatever kind of encouragement they needed, at least they left Egypt. And however frightening it might have been to go through those waters, they crossed through the Red Sea. But here they are now resisting and rebelling against what Caleb is encouraging them to do. And that is to go in and conquer the land of Canaan. And Caleb was well familiar with all the trauma that they had been through. The close calls and how difficult it would be for them. And yet he is telling this generation, expecting from them, even though they're fresh from slavery, to bustle up and to fight the giants. No, as we consider this, we come to realize that good leadership and good preaching... It's not going to be that which expresses contentment with mediocrity. 
1969, the Harvard Business Review released a book written by J. Stanley or, or J. Sterling Livingstone called Pygmalion and Management. And you may or may not know this. I'm not much of the thespian type, but uh, Pygmalion was remade into a play called My Fair Lady. And the protagonist of My Fair Lady is Eliza Doolittle. And in the midst of George Bernard Shaw's play, at some point, Eliza says, The difference between a flower girl and a lady is not how she behaves, but how she is treated. And Livingston takes that analogy and the research that he had done to make this point. He said, When management expects excellence, productivity is likely to be high. But when management has low expectations, productivity is likely to be poor. And I don't think that that's just true regarding ladies and business management. I think it's also true with regard to the people of God. If we expect little or nothing, if we expect that the church is going to look like the world, if we expect the church is not going to evangelize, if we expect that we can be lukewarm and uninvolved, If we expect little or nothing, then I believe the congregation comes to accept that. But if leadership and if the pulpit calls the membership to commitment, my experience with the people of God is that they will reach for it. If we're talking about giving or good works or evangelism or whatever else God calls for, God's people want to do the right thing. And clear preaching is that which calls for commitment. While I believe this is very clear, it seems sometimes we bought into the idea that we've got to handle the people of God with kid gloves. The New Yorker cartoon had it depicted one day in the newspaper of a church building. And out front, the the church sign said, uh, Light Church. And the description was, 24% fewer commitments. Home of the 7.5% tithe. 15-minute sermons, 45-minute services, only eight commandments you choose. We follow only three spiritual laws, everything you wanted in a church and less. And that may be a little bit of a stretch, but by how much? You see, there's a call to commitment in the gospel. And clear voices will call the people of God to commit like God has called us to. You know, I I think we can look at Caleb and see that just because you expect commitment and you have expectations, they don't always get met. But so often they do. Look at the Apostle Paul, who is the most prolific New Testament writer. He says this to Rome. He says this to Corinth. He says it to Galatia, to Thessalonica. And he even says it to Philemon. He says, I have confidence in you. As we think about what he says to Rome, particularly in Romans chapter 15, verse 14 and 15, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, brethren, that you are full of goodness. You are filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Nehemiah spoke to the exiles coming back from their captivity. And he says, Let us rise and build. Then the people lifted their hands to the good work. David's about to be coronated king in 2 Samuel 2 and verse 7. And he speaks to the man of Jabeth Gilead. And he says, let your hands be strong and very valiant. 
And even though Abner did everything in his power to try to keep that from happening, ultimately the people responded to David's confidence in them. As we think about what God needs and wants today, so many of God's people want to do what's right. And when they are encouraged, and when they are exhorted to do what is right, and when they are challenged to commit, they rise up and build. You rise up and build with strong and valiant hands. What do we need to keep ourselves from the wilderness? We need clear voices and clear preaching calls for commitment. But second, I want you to notice with me as we look at this particular context that clear preaching is that which has the Lord as its authority. From the time that God calls Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, he claims that his message is from God. Now later on, he warns them about a false prophet. How would they know whether or not one was truly speaking from God? And of course, there was a litmus test there in Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. Did his message come to pass? And he says, don't be afraid of that prophet, and that prophet is worthy of death. But that wasn't the way it was with Moses. In Numbers chapter 29 and verse 40, the Bible tells us that he did according to all that the Lord had given to him, what he had commanded Moses, so he shared with the people. And in Numbers chapter 12, as we saw this morning, even Moses and and, uh, Aaron, rather, and Miriam questioned Moses as the spokesman of God. And in that context, God says that I have revealed it to him mouth to mouth, even openly. And you would think that Moses, having such a privilege, not just getting in a vision, not just getting in a dream, but that would make him arrogant. And yet, as we saw in the context, it's not so. The Bible says, now Moses, the man, was humble, very humble, more humble than any man on earth. May I suggest as an aside that it is so incongruous for the messenger of God to be arrogant when he is speaking God's message If we understand that this is God's message that we are presenting, then that ought to humble us to the core. Moses was a man who was humble in the message that he received from God. And so you'll notice with me that Moses humbly and truthfully presented what the word of God was, what God wanted him to say. In Numbers chapter 30 and verse 1, for example, Moses says, as he said many other times, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. In fact, some 36 times, from Exodus chapter 16 to Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses says, the Lord has commanded. And I want you to see the power of that. Moses was receiving his revelation directly from God. We receive the revelation from the Word of God, not directly. And yet we have the same charge, that the foundation beneath what we say must be what has the Lord commanded and not what we think and what we believe to be true. And so it is, it can be so tempting for the preacher to get himself in the way of the message. When I believe that preaching is about how comical and how entertaining and how fascinating I am, that I'm in trouble as a messenger of God because the message is not about me. You think about some of the most widely recognized religious figures today that the average person on the street would know who they were. So many of those messengers have massacred the master's message. They teach such things as salvation by faith alone. They teach once saved, always saved. They teach it doesn't matter what you do or say so long as you love Jesus. 
They teach that we need to loosen up and that we as the church need to look like and to think like and to act like and to talk like the world. But that's not a message which has divine authority. The Bible has given us God's message. And that message that I just mentioned might be very appealing to people. But we've got to have divine authority underneath our message. Our message needs to be God's word. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who called you from the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other message unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. If I said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The beautiful thing about God's message is that it is simple and straightforward. It's man that has complicated things and has muddied the water. In 1959, the co-founder of Random Books, a man by the name of Bennett Cerf, bet Dr. Seuss $50 that he could not write a book that was coherent and that had a meaningful message in 50 words. Dr. Seuss loved such challenges. And the next year, he produced the book, Green Eggs and Ham. It has 49 words. And if you've ever read it, and it doesn't take very long to do so, it has a very simple understanding message. Infinitely more so about something so much more important is the Word of God. It's clear. It's understandable. I don't know if any of you ever use Christian book distributors, also known to some as CBD. But they have a comparison chart in which they give the reading level, approximate reading level of the different translations for people who are going to buy a Bible. And the King James Version, it is said, one to, to read that has to have a 12th grade reading level. The New American Standard Bible, you've got to have an 11th grade reading level, it's, it is said. The uh, New International Version, a 7th or 8th grade level. The New King James Version, the 7th grade level. But here's the thing. If you listen to some preachers and some theologians talk about religious matters, they will lead you to think that you've got to have a Ph.D. in order to properly understand it. The kind of preaching that they did in the wilderness is the kind of preaching that we need today. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 3, in which we share all that the Lord has commanded. That's what's going to save us. That's what's going to keep us out of the wilderness. We've got to have clear voices. That means we've got to call for commitment it means that we've got to have divine authority. Our message has got to be true to what God's Word says. But there's one other thing I want you to notice with me. If we're going to have clear voices, if we're going to be clear in our preaching, then that preaching must be with patience and compassion. You know, when I think about a remarkable statement that is made about Moses that's recorded for us in the Psalms, in Psalm 106, beginning at verse 21, it's a very impressive there it says, Israel forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, God said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. What a beautiful picture. Here is Moses on the one hand who is pleading with God, and here is God on the other, and here in the middle are the people of God. And the Bible says Moses stands in the breach, 
As if to say, please, Lord, turn away your wrath. And by the way, this is from the events in Numbers chapter 14, where God at length appeals, or rather Moses appeals to God on behalf of the people. And the climax of that is in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 19, where he says to have mercy on them according to his great mercy that he has shown in forgiving them of their sins from Egypt, even until that day. What picture do you have of Moses, the preacher? Do you see Moses as an austere, cold, heartless man? Moses stays on the job 40 years. That indicates, as you read something about those people that he had to deal with, that he had to be possessed of no small amount of patience. But it wasn't just the patience. There was a relationship between them. Moses demonstrates a care and a love for them from the beginning to the end. And there's, that's not to say that he wasn't frustrated. He was frustrated from the golden calf all the way to the time in Kadesh where he strikes the rock in anger. And yet, even when he was a very young man, and he kills the cruel Egyptian slave driver in Exodus chapter 2 all the way to the time when they bury him in the ground in Deuteronomy 34 in the land of Moab, Moses' heart is with the people. And the people's heart was with him. How did they feel about Moses, their preacher? Well, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 34, they mourn him for 30 days. You know, it's a very sad thing for me to contemplate that I'm a preacher and a son of a preacher. And I'm sad to say that I've had a lot of conversations with preachers that left me feeling pretty down. I know preachers who look at their relationship with members as if they were enemies with one another. And yet that's not the relationship Moses had with the people. They had a close relationship. You know, it seems to me that some men never seem to develop a bond or closeness with the people with whom they work and to whom they preach. And whether that's a fear of getting hurt or it's an inability to form relationships... To me, that makes it it seem very difficult to form mutual empathy and understanding of one another. And may I also suggest that clear preaching that is delivered without heart and compassion is simply cold and lifeless preaching. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is not just concerned with Timothy being bold and courageous. There are other attributes that are needed, and you find it throughout 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, there has to be love and discipline. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, there's going to be gentleness and patience and humility. And in chapter 4 and verse 2, there's going to be exhortation and great patience with the people. You know, in the cold, proverbial wilderness of sin in the world, there are a lot of people who convey the idea that they could not care less. But the man of God who preaches is not going to reflect or mimic that disposition. What does that mean? That means that God's preacher is not going to act like he's perfect and sinless and like his listeners are hopeless and pathetic. The preacher who preaches is not going to speak as though he assumes the worst of the people to whom he preaches. And the man of God who preaches is not going to lock himself away from people and stay in some ivory tower. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 and 13 was not written to gospel preachers, but inasmuch as gospel preachers are Christians, these qualities ought to show up. And the preacher. In Colossians 3, 12 and 13, Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, 
kindness, humility, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against any, even as God has done, so also do you. This is how I want to be dealt with with God. And this is how I must present God to others. And so when I speak about sin and hell, I want to convey that it's of great concern to me that anyone would allow sin to enter their life to such a degree that they would be lost and go there. And when I speak of service, and when I speak of involvement, I need to do so hopefully and expectantly by giving the proper example. Sadly, for one reason or another, some preachers who have preached have become bitter and isolated and depressed during the course of, or maybe even because of their preaching. When I look at Moses, I see a man who had cause for discouragement, but one who continued to demonstrate patience and compassion. No matter what you do in life, there's going to be disappointments. You have faced stress. You have faced hurts. You have been mistreated. Whatever your profession is, the same is true of preachers. But the man of God who is working with the people of God must keep his focus on the joy that comes in serving God and His people. And that will convey itself in the kind of preaching that is done. Certainly that which is balanced and delivers the whole counsel of God, but that is full of patience and compassion. My dad used to quote a poem, and I can't find it anywhere. He didn't have it readily available for me. I found another version elsewhere that you may have heard. It's an alleged call that some have made for the kind of preacher that they want. The poem reads in part, it's a very long poem, I'll just give you an excerpt from it. Preach a sermon, preacher, but don't preach very long. Just tell a heartwarming story, but don't condemn the wrong. Preach a sermon, preacher, but say nothing of our duty. Tell us all about God's grace and picture heaven's beauty. Leave out the things that we must do. We're busy making money. Keep it short and off the point and make it sweet as honey. Preach a sermon, preacher, but say nothing of our sins. Don't speak of hell, repentance, or of other stuff that offends. Tell us about how Jesus loves each and every one and how he will forgive us no matter how our lives are run. I doubt there are very many people here who would make such a request, but there are some in the world and even in the church That kind of a preacher does not have a clear voice. That's not the kind of preaching that's needed to keep us from the wilderness. The kind of preaching that we need is the kind of preaching that causes calls us, that urges us to bigger, better, and greater things for the Lord, that calls for our commitment and does not tell us to sit and be satisfied. The kind of preaching that is the clear preaching of the wilderness is a preaching that has divine authority beneath it. That is the Lord's message, not mixed with man's. And the kind of preaching that will keep us from that wilderness is one that is tinged and filled with compassion and patience. May I suggest that it would not be clear preaching this morning if I did not share with you the Lord's invitation. It may be you want to go ahead and get your songbook out as we prepare to sing that song of encouragement. The clear message of Scripture is this. That if you are outside of Christ, and there's only one way into Christ, 
Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, For you are all the sons of God, or the children of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's the Lord's way. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you realize that your sin has you lost, that you need to turn away from that sin and repent. And thus you also need to be baptized to have your sins washed away. Donnie's going to lead us in a song to encourage you. If that's your need, why wait another moment? And if you're a child of God who's not living faithfully and need to come back home to the Lord, if you need to do that in a public way, we want to provide a a means for you to do so. To Come back perhaps from that wilderness where you've been wandering. Back to the place of promise. The place of safety. If you need to respond to this invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing? God is calling the prodigal, come without delay.